0: there is a huge immense gap in between what scientists and psychologists in science understand about human behavior at work and how little of that we actually put into practice. And luckily, what I see from former colleagues from my PhD program is that they're very pushy now to bring knowledge mainstream and are spending as much energy to land in Wall Street Journal and in other mainstream publications as they do on scientific publications.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Everyday Leadership. And today I have a psychologist gone rogue as my guest. Someone who quit her PhD journey a way, very long time ago and has gone through a number of different startups and now is the founder of Bunch, which is a company that helps people become better leaders in two minutes. Yes, yeah, said that, two minutes. So as you can imagine, as a coach, we got into really, really interesting conversation with deja gutnick and we navigate things such as fear and why the fear of safety moved her away from from forensic psychology like she literally had a plan and a path laid out in front of her and she chose to turn away from that how she didn't want to become an entrepreneur because of her mother and yet she is now an entrepreneur how she never failed until she was 30 and why that was so important for her. And then we actually talk about when she did fail. We talk about the mistakes she made. And we talk about packing everything up, selling everything, moving to Argentina and how that played out for her. We also talk about why she tried to avoid creating another product and tech business, and yet that's what she does right now. We talk about having a great co-founder who's hands-on, who's very, very humble, and how he actually got introduced to the organization. We talk about ethics in AI. It's a major, major, major topic right now and her take on it because of she's doing a lot of work with AI and learning, it's a really, really good one. We talk about challenging the HR market theory versus practicality, why it's important that they're focusing on impact rather than revenue and how that is very, very different to other people around her. We have a great conversation, which I want to get into now. So let me stop talking. Welcome to another episode of Their Leadership Today. With Deja Gutnik. When I came across your profile and your company, and they were talking about helping people become better leaders in two minutes a day. I was like, two minutes a day. Is that it? <laughs> like, yes, you can imagine because I'm an exec coach and I spend hours working with leaders. I'm like, two minutes a day. This is gonna be fascinating for sure. But before we do that, the one thing I always love to do is go way back to a younger version of you, I someone sort of call it a teenage version of you, if not even longer than that. Just curious to see what was the dream and the desire when you were younger.
0: Like 16 or like 12? there was. Ooh,
1: a I want to go 12. <laughs> I'm curious. 12.
0: Oh no. <laughs> I was afraid that would happen. <laughs> 12 is like the one I can't remember as much, but funny enough, I always had some like weird musician and like artist dreams. Like during childhood, I always wanted to become like a um, dancer. For some reason in New York, funny enough, I do spend a lot of time there now. <laughs> it's nothing to do with dancing though, but that was like my first dream that I can remember. And then I think that kind of like switched it to I don't know, like marine biologists and scientists of some sort. And then I think at one point I was really into red chili peppers and like right against the machine and things like that. I'm sure there was also a musician dream in there <laughs> somewhere and I do play guitar. So I didn't like really have a very clear path. I think the one thing I did know is like, that I don't want to become an entrepreneur like my mom. And here we are. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and that's why I kind of was asked that question because there's so many people who say from a young age, I don't want to become this. And yet, but end up doing exactly that. I guess I'm curious, where did the... That's
0: so strange, isn't it? It is. I haven't looked into the psychology of that, actually. I'm sure there is like a good explanation.
1: Oh, wow. Ooh, actually, they got me curious now. I'm going to look into that one. Where did the psychologist part come from then?
0: So, twofold. I grew up with two very different parents. So, I mean, my parents got divorced when I was quite young, like eight, I think. And my dad is like the kind of crazy brainiac. Like, he is like a physicist but also was an artist was writing painting all sorts of things so, like very very like intellectually strong but also emotionally very, very troubled I also struggled with addiction and things like that and so like I think the interest in like healthy psychology and how to like not get into trouble like that was kind of like just came with how I grew up and like watching him going through the struggles so my mom is quite the opposite she's like the pragmatic entrepreneur like just like solves problems one day in day out like there's nothing no challenges ever to like big to tackle type of thing. So I think I kind of have both sides. Like I have the creative sides for my dad, but also the very like action oriented, results oriented mom side. And so I think psychology was always the key for me to like bringing those two together and also understand how these two very different perspectives in life can work. And I think as I got more and more into the field, I also saw very different areas of psychology. So I actually did an internship in a jail once because I was really interested in forensic psychology. Which is basically deviant behavior that doesn't really make a lot of sense in our society or like doesn't keep us safe, et cetera. And I found it really interesting when I worked there, but at the same time I also understood that from like your own professional development like career perspective, like it's a very particular like route that you are subscribing yourself to and you need to commit to it because as a forensic psychologist, you can be two things like author and scientists <laughs> or you actually work for like forensic institutions and you're like practitioners it's, like nothing else and it's very difficult to switch careers. And so I was 22 or so and I was kind of like, oh, wow, this is a big commitment for the rest <laughs> of my life. I will be dealing with uh, <laughs> deviant behavior. And that's basically at the end of story. In comparison to other, a lot of my other study colleagues that actually like this, there's also the safety component. Like if you are for instance, a forensic psychologist, you're actually like employed by the state and you like never have to worry again. And you have like your pension sorted out and all of that stuff. So a lot of my colleagues actually were like, oh, wow, this is so cool. And there's like only 5% of people that get these jobs and like, you should totally do it. And I was really mortified by the idea of, oh my God, I have like this one job now <laughs> until I die and I'm like so safe. So I was very scared and I like turned around entirely and thought, okay, what other group of people has an interesting behavior? Let's look at managers. <laughs> so I switched from forensic psychology to org psychology and that was actually equally interesting, if not more interesting, because there's more different things to study within the org psychology field. It's like basically super wide, ranging from career and personal growth and like a lot of the things that we deal with as coaches, right? But also to like immoral behaviors in the workplace or even like identity building in the workplace, inclusive inclusion and belonging right now, which goes into like gender identity and how to help build that within companies. So like, it's such a wide field that it was the opposite of a forensic thing. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. I can do so many things. I can be so many things. And I think that's kind of how it started. And as I studied the field, and maybe that's like the bridge to the company we're building today is one thing stood out to me, which is there's so much science and research in the organizational psychology or IO, psychology, industrial and organizational psychology spectrum that. I was baffled when I did my first internships in the industry <laughs> as like, you know, HR intern this and like recruiting intern that and then leadership and development working student here and like the, the usual stuff that you do when you study these several fields. I noticed how little of that was used by people that were like working in the field. And that really confused me because I was like, why am I studying all these books? And we know all these like interesting things. And then I go into the Actual practitioners' field, and then there isn't any methodology and frameworks used. And then I realized there is this huge divide between academic science in that field and the actual concepts we use. And no offense to like Peter Drucker, I think he was like a very great like baseline for the field, very smart and wise man. However, when you like meet someone, so last week I met someone who has a PhD. In computer science, and she's leading a machine learning startup, and it's a woman. She's brilliant and amazing, and I learned so much from her. And then we started talking about management, and it's like her second team now that she's leading and building up. And I was asking, interviewing her, like, where did you learn about leadership, and like, what type of stuff do you like read and listen, and like, where do you get your stuff from? She's like, well, when I had my first managerial position in this, like, in university as an engineer, that was like needed to build up a team of engineers and researchers. I downloaded this essay, Peter Drucker. I don't remember what the the title is, but like this very famous one. I read that. That sounded a little bit old fashioned. So I thought that's probably the newest we know on leadership and so on. So I started looking around on Google, but like, I kind of wish I knew where I would go to actually for like most update framework and mental models and leadership. And I think that like anecdote really showcases how did, like how big that problem actually is. Like there is a huge immense gap in between what scientists and psychologists in science understand about human behavior at work and how little of that we actually put into practice. And luckily, what I see from former colleagues from my PhD program is that they're very pushy now to bring knowledge mainstream and are spending as much energy to land in Wall Street Journal and in other mainstream publications as they do on scientific publications. But that has really just changed very recently. But yeah, that's kind of my story with the psychology.
1: It's a really fascinating one, actually, because a lot of times people lean towards security and safety, and you kind of saw security and safety in your future, and you went the complete opposite route, and you even really went into becoming an entrepreneur, so you went to, like, the extreme. <laughs> not being That's so
0: true. And you know what's funny? This was tw- when I was 22, right? And then the first time I needed to really apply for, like, a full-time job was, like, at 25. I did this, like, bachelor combined master program in Europe. We used to have this. It wasn't, like, so separate. It was, like, a diploma. So it kind of counts like a master. It's like a five-year study. And you have, like, a basic study. And then you kind of have the specialization. So I did that. And so with 25, I was done with that. And then I was kind of, like, applying for jobs. And people were asking me all these funny questions. When did you fail? What was your learning? And I was looking back and I'm like, I don't know what they mean. <laughs> like I've been like best in class since like, I don't know how long I can remember. I like do my homework. I like study for everything. I have like best grades. I go to my job. Like I get good recommendations. Like I've looked back and I was literally like, especially in the workplace, as I mentioned, my my family hasn't been the easiest, but like still even just this question of like, when did you take a risk and then you failed and you learned from it? And I really struggled to answer this until I think pretty much I was like 30 until I actually gave up on the PhD. I think I didn't have a good answer to this. And I think I already felt that I'm so safety oriented actually. And like, I don't take any risks. So I like just do everything by the book and like I do everything to like not fail Mm -hmm. subliminally that then I think brought me, like intuitively, I knew that's not a good way to grow. I didn't grasp that yet. I was too young, but like, I think I have, there was a push inside of me where, oh my God, if I now also take like a safety route, I'm basically dead. <laughs> like, I've never failed. And so I've got a safe job now and like, I will never fail again. That's like the end of my story. And it just like looked so horrifying that intuitively, we always know like what's the right thing for us right now. So if we've been taking a lot of risk and you're pushed to take more risk, you'll feel this like, push towards security and safety and like taking it a bit easier and taking safe bets. I've also done that in the past after my first company, I've kind of promised myself I had a burnout at the end of it. And like, I've promised myself I'm not doing this again. Like the startup stuff is too crazy. Like (laughs) I need a break. And so I, I did a consultancy for a few years and that was a good move for me, I think. And back then I definitely wouldn't have been able to take that risk, but I think intuitively you kind of know whether you need more risk now and you're like having appetite for learning and failure is that's what makes you grow or whether you actually kind of need to chill on the beach as we say in Founderland.
1: <laughs> I'm curious now because you, you kind of put it out there. What was that first failure?
0: Oh, gee. oh, it's an interesting question. So I do consider it a failure to like start a PhD program and like not end it. But I still think it was the right decision for me. I still think it was the right move. But I do feel about, I do think about it as a failure in like, not in like a regretful sense, but in a sense that you like invest three and a half years into a project and then you get learnings out of it. But there is also like an additional upside, like, I don't know, the recognition, maybe the title, they don't really play enough role for me in the end, which is why they decided to give it up. It wasn't worth it enough. But there is of course, like some element of like, well, probably could have invested these three and a half years into building like a business and maybe that would have like acted out differently. But I don't feel a lot of regret. I feel like I would say 80, 90% of peace and satisfaction with the fact that I chose to like turn around in that moment. And I feel pride, I think, when I think about making that decision because my mom, who I respect highly and who is a very like successful entrepreneur and I said like she's kind of a self-made woman in many ways, obviously wanted me to keep that PhD and finish it. (laughs) again we came from like a soviet union family we have nothings to like oh my god you can have a phd what is wrong with you (laughs) like no i'm gonna do gonna go and pause it and do the startup she didn't even know what startup is now she kind of knows but barely (laughs) so it was difficult sell and i had to like also make that decision on my own to say like i don't care even though like i care so much about what she thinks of me and her opinion mattered a lot to me this was the moment where i kind of needed to like step back and say well it's Either me or complying with whatever I think people think of me or want me to do. And it was the first moment where I stepped out of that and said, I am going to pause this, sell everything I have, move to Argentina and build this travel startup. It's a great idea.
1: (laughs) How many people at that time do you feel believed in what you were doing?
0: No one. (laughs) Me, barely. Barely. (laughs) No, it's not true. There was one angel that invested in us, which is that that's the confusing element as in like, otherwise I wouldn't have come up with the idea even to do it. Like we won some like random competition in like a university have, I don't even know. It was some like entrepreneurial community that I was part of because I was doing research with entrepreneurs because my topic in the PhD was creativity under pressure at the intersection of leadership. So I was doing lots of research with founders, and I think I had this feeling for the first time that I actually kind of found my tribe, like people that I met through that, like my subjects (laughs) were very similar to me. So I was, oh, interesting. Like these are the type of people I can imagine myself working with for a long time. And it was really just like fun more than anything. Like I always had ideas on businesses and like products and stuff, projects we can do. So I pitched one of them and then. We somehow got like this angel to commit 25K, I think. And we drove to Berlin. This was in the Netherlands because he was in Berlin. And then we talked to him and he was like, yeah, cool. Build this MVP. And we were like, what? (laughs) What are we going to do now? (laughs) We need to build an MVP. I don't even know. I remember I Googled like pitch deck at one point. Didn't know what that was. (laughs) It was not part of my scientific education. But yeah, we did a pitch deck and then the rest is history. But I do think like thinking, I mean, maybe the failure came actually afterwards because I paused the PGE, I did the startup. We actually had lots of success, especially in the first few months. Like we had a very kind of like quick ramp up time and i made two crucial mistakes. I mistook one particular thing in the business model. So we kind of were building something that was similar to like the Airbnb activities. So it was a platform that connected local businesses that offered events and tours and activities to tourists. And we did it in English, which like a lot of the people in South America didn't offer. Most didn't. And we also had a personalization engine already underneath. So we were tapping into like people's Facebook profiles, exerted their interest from that, and then like basically customized their activities and event selection based on that to maximize conversion rates. So like to present things to you that you are actually interested in. And so we had a lot of success with like setting the first program app to get the first 400 businesses on board. We had like a really good team. But I came from the West in that moment, aka Germany, Europe, and then also the US. And I assumed that people would be paying with credit cards and they would take a cut and we would take a cut on the booking. And then I found out that in South America, everything is cash. And there's so, so much like weird business with currencies that credit cards aren't really a means of use, like people pay cash. So like we became this like listings business very quickly where people would like go online, get the recommendations, go to the places and then pay in cash. So like revenue wasn't as like possible or in the same way possible as we assumed. And so we kind of figured that out, but we figured it out quite late. At the same time, I also had underestimated how long fundraising would take. And we were kind of like at this point of like, oh man, we're like running out of money. Like, Everyone's excited, but also like people are kind of like can't go without salaries for like ever. And it was this very dangerous, I think, very dangerous moment for every startup where you can lose hope or you can lose your business if you don't like pay so much attention earlier on. And I didn't in that time. Very different with Bunch now. <laughs> but at that time, that was my thing. Those was my like real, real failure, I would say.
1: Things are a really important point though, because I think Most of the successful businesses and entrepreneurs that we see today, all their founders had to have some sort of early setback or failure to really help them to understand what it's like to, for one of them, to lose, to make mistakes, to figure things out along the way. And they now build one or two where it's either you completely quit and you now go down the safe route because you're like, I've tried this extreme. I'm not going to do that anymore. Or you'd be like, actually, you know what? There were a lot of lessons I learned from that. Now i have a better idea of how to be able to navigate. And then you kind of go again. And obviously you, you went that route and you went again. But like you said, if you never got into it, you never learned those things, you wouldn't be where you are right now. They're so, so important. And so many times people like discount their failures that they want to talk about. I'm like, it's kind of what helped build your backbone. Especially as I which is what you need.
0: So true. I mean, there was also a lot of learnings about co-founders. And I think on the like topic of fundraising, how to keep the lights on, and like how to like establish a really good, like stable backbone for the company. Like I think I couldn't have done it differently for Bunch than I did in like my first startup, City Buddies. It was I didn't have very solid like relationships with my co founders. They were all like very tech focused. So I was kind of like the business person and I was looking for the tech people. Now I'm more in the like product and tech space and I actually have a business co-founder who is like much better in selling us as a startup and as a venture in many ways. Like I think we make a good team and I'm a good closing person and he's like a good top funnel person. So really, really good in like pitching the company, getting the first interest, getting people excited and then kind of like selling the team as, look, this is like the engine and the machine of learning. And then I kind of come in with like my science background and like nerd out (laughs) people. So they kind of, understand how we work together, but I think that's a very, very, very different setup than what I had in the first company. And I think also the way we manage resources or even cash and how we like stress about runways and how like early we start thinking about, oh, like what's our fundraising strategy for the next round? What's our next story? Or even how we like use advisors and our board members. We have a board member right now that is very experienced uh, business leader who we also prioritize that way. Like he's been in the trenches since like the first two crises, like the dot-com boom and then the 2008 crisis, like has in both cases has lived through the actual thick and thin as a CEO of his old company in that moment. And then also was a CEO of a company that IPO, DigitalOcean. So I think like how we picked our crew as well, like showcases to like, oh, hey, we don't want to make like, A lot of beginner mistakes. This is an important company for us. We actually want to succeed with that one. And not that we're afraid of failure, like we constantly have to work against it, but it's more like we want to have a safety support system around us so that when we fail, we have something to fall back onto and we can like pull from the network that we built around ourselves. Because I think both Anthony and I are very serious about this company's mission, mostly. Like we also want it to be financially successful, like don't get me wrong, but I think it's mostly an personal mission i think for both of us to help people to thrive build better teams and us do a better job in connecting this like knowledge that exists in the ivy league schools behind the nba doors with like your i don't know white old grandfather that has like access to all the money about power. And then maybe shares the secrets. Like we want to unlock that knowledge and we want to give it to everyone in the world because we deeply believe that this will help us to solve our problems much faster and better.
1: How did you two meet? I'm thinking about, when thinking about modeling relationships in and, and teams. Obviously, you and your co-founder sound like you have a good one. So how did you two actually meet?
0: Oh, well, we have like a crazy story. So like we don't have like a romantic start. We were introduced by an investor. We didn't like find each other in some like random tech event and, you know, fell in love or whatever it was pretty much like a setup. I was looking for someone at that time. So I partnered with an engineer quite early because again, I was like, I could not run away more from like product and tech. And yet here I am. It's kind of like with entrepreneurship, I did like everything to avoid it. And then I ended up with it anyways. But I think back then I partnered with an engineer. It was a great early stage engineer. Uh, we decided to kind of jump on the opportunity together. The company was originally my consulting business. So I was kind of like the originally founder, but I also, when we switched to like product and let SaaS, I knew I need to build a team. And so I started to like bring people on board, like sharing my shares, selling my shares and stuff. And so I brought on this like early stage engineer. And then I, we were looking for someone else who kind of helps us to structure the product process. And so Anthony was with his first startup out of university, like did one. And- he knew all one of our like angel investors and he introduced us saying like, hey, I don't know much about this guy. Seems like what you're looking for though, like a good generalist, like very hungry social scientist as well, has a bit of product background, but like is pretty much a rough diamond. Like you probably have to coach him a lot, like, but he will probably also do a lot and like learn a lot. And that's exactly how it was. Like I think Anthony's growth trajectory over the past five years is incredible. Like he went kind of from like a glorified intern really and like." The first thing he did for us was like arranging tables in a party. That's like the internet. That's the joke. Like he arrived at a party, which is when we met. It was like our summer event or whatever. And like nobody knew who he is. And so somebody told him, like, let's move these tables around. So he was like moving tables for two hours. And then I met him after and I'm like, Oh my God, he shouldn't you shouldn't need to move these tables. But it you shows, shows the
1: humility that I was like, Yep, yeah, ready to exactly. get in and do what and
0: he yeah, that's like that's him he's like super humble but also hands-on attitude and it's just incredibly fast learner and now he's able to not only like convince investors but also like bring on board talent structure mo- some of our most like long-term and complicated processes from like data security type of stuff till fundraising processes still flipping the company from like eu company to the us till i don't even know i mean basically every like complicated strategic financial or legal process is going for him at this point, while I'm more on the like fast paced like product and growth cycles with our team. And I think we are very much equal in our impact at this point, the level of impact, but very different in like what we bring to
1: the business. Which is good. You want that balance between both of you. Exactly. Which is what move the company forward. Yeah. I mean, Tree, do you have a fascination with fruit? Because you used to be called 12 grapes, and now you're called <laughs> a bunch. So I'm like, what is, that? What is, that? is that correlation here yeah, definitely,
0: definitely like fruit. <laughs> there is a second fruit on my table that I'm going to eat later. 12 grapes, I think that was a trend, you know, like you combined like letters and numbers with each other. And we were thinking, ah, you know one of our customers at that point was N26. So we're like, okay, cool. Like currently brands have been called a number and a letter or a number, a bunch of letters. And then we did aspire to be a successful billion dollar business. So a fruit, it has to be, I guess, and Apple was already taken. So, <laughs> <laughs> with great. Legitimately, that was the story. But then <laughs> when we went into like the product direction, we knew we have to be, have like a more catchier, like simpler title, like 12 grapes, whatever, but like it needs to have a one word, one syllable type of like situation here if you want to have a good like online product. And already like domains were obviously kind of busy at that point. So it wasn't like the easiest to find. So we did a like a bunch of exercises, you know, the whole team putting in Google Sheets and all of the stuff. Like none of these names made it. (laughs) And then there was an investor that came to visit us in the office, I think, and one of our first employees who was doing user research at the time. I think Sam was explaining to him like, why 12 grapes and how does it relate to teams and whatever. And he was using this word bunch all the time. He was like, yeah, you know, like every team is like kind of similar to grapes because it's always kind of like the same thing, but it's always different. Everyone's unique, but also the same like laws supply somehow, but yet everyone feels different. And it's a bit like bit far, <laughs> but he did a very good job explaining it. And he kept constantly saying like, it's kind of like a bunch of grapes, like a bunch of grapes. And then when the investor left, we looked at each other and we we're like, "Why is it actually not called Bunch? It's kind of like a nice derivative name, like a nice evolution of it. <laughs> its brand." And we looked up like domains, and there was a bunch of AI and we felt, "Oh my God, we're so lucky! Let's just do <laughs> Let's it. Let's go for it." <laughs>
1: okay,
0: and here we are.
1: I like, yeah. it. I like it, like <laughs> it. Have you found it challenging when you talk about what it is that Bunch does? Because like, so I right to start talking about becoming better leaders in two minutes. It sounds so easy, especially when you look around and there are a lot of bad leadership examples. So you're kind of like, well, if if you can get it done in two minutes, why isn't that one you have better leaders and is two minutes actually really, really possible?
0: (laughs) Yes. So obviously this is a bit of like a hook and it's a good hook as in like it validated itself over the past one and a half years by our user community. When we started doing it, we actually didn't start from scratch. It was assume maybe no. we started with the b two b solution actually, and we turned one hundred and eighty degrees and decided to actually build a product for the end user after we already had the b two b solution on the market. we had vague customers, we were kind of like in this phase of like growing revenues, we were observing our end users, we were seeing we're not making enough impact. we are not engaging them enough, they're not retained enough and then when we talk to other people in the same space like Culture AMP and Picon and like other engagement platforms. We noticed that our numbers aren't necessarily worse than theirs. It's just a whole industry that actually doesn't really care about the end user impact as much. It like is very focused on selling a good like contract to company X, providing XX with insights, which don't get me wrong is very important. They do need to be informed and they do need the data, but like that isn't actually making the difference in the organization. So. We then kind of drill deeper and ask ourselves, what will make a difference? So let's say you as an executive, as a CEO of your company, you're 500 people, you know that engagement is low, you know there's issues. What are you ought to do at this point? Like you need some sort of guidance, some sort of program, some sort of content, whatever it is for your leadership team and the people that help them, their team leads to like actually adjust their behavior, to actually change things on a daily basis. And because both Anthony and I were very mission driven, we thought, well, we kind of have to build something that does that, no? And then (laughs) we went back to our investors. We said, yeah, so retention engagement is not the best. We think it's because we actually are not providing enough value to the end user. We have to do better than that. They ask us for content recommendations. We can do it. Remember CityBuddy's recommendation engine? Same thing, legitimately, I'm not lying. Like Same principle, (laughs) same type of product, just like different use case. And then we were like, okay, let's try it. So then we kind of went back, but we already had a lot of user research. We like had all these interviews with these managers, team leads, product managers, et cetera, in these companies, because our paying customers were like the Digital Oceans, the InFarms, the N26s. Like We had good customers. We had good feedback from them. So we decided to go bottom up and we said, let's focus on that user first and let's see what they need. Then we figured out, oh, they actually, back to this woman's example don't actually even know where to go. So while we all in the HR industry may believe there's so much out there, or like the psychologists may think that we understand how to build good teams or whatever, the person on the ground, the like team lead front end in XYZ tech company, they don't have access to any of this. And one of the reasons why they don't have access to it is because it's very heavy. It requires them a lot of commitment. Like they need to like read a book, they need to find the right book, Maybe they need to find a coach. Maybe they need to book some workshop. Like it's all a lot of work and very heavy and they don't have that much energy. Like they're constantly mind-boggled with their schedules and like as busy as everyone else's. And so this like bridge from, I am here today, tomorrow I have a one-on-one. It feels a bit funny, but I don't know what to do about it. (laughs) To like, there's this whole world that I don't have access to because it's like the HR people and like the psychologists and whoever swims in it. And like the HBR articles, I have no time to read. That disconnect is what we discovered, and so we decided to claim that we can help you to build that habit, that learning habit. If you just spend two minutes a day, not because we believe that's all it needs, but because we think that's a very good starting point, and most people don't even get to do that. So we kind of thought, if we get everyone to actually believe they can put a little bit of effort every day, they can start learning frameworks and mental models that are adjusted to what they need on a daily basis and they will start building on top of that. And in fact, when you actually see our most engaged user segments, it's exactly what you see happening. They start with very short sessions and they start expanding them. So it's not so much that we think that's like the only thing you will ever need, but it's the only thing to get to actually get the first value out of the product. And I think that's the important part. While if you coach someone, you ask them to commit at least 60 minutes. And we just simply believe a lot of people are being excluded from that process because 60 minutes can be a very long time in 2022.
1: It's an interesting one. It's an interesting Mm. one because if we go back to what you're talking about earlier on around the difference between, I'm going to call it theory and practicality, where you have a lot of people who are great from the theory, they have, have the PhDs, they've done 20 plus years of research, all that kind of good stuff. And then you take it to the reality or the practical. And it's like, yeah, this is not relevant. Or I can't really use this, or this doesn't tap into the complexity of dealing with human beings. It's a complicated approach, but humans are complex. And I found that quite, let me see, I had a corporate va- background before navigating into this. So I know what it's like to work in corporate mm-hmm. environments and stop environments and then have the theory from this side and merge them together. Mm-hmm. And I always find it like when I'm having conversations with people who, don't have a corporate background or business background and the way they talk, I'm just like, that's not real. That's not, it doesn't, doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't translate. So I can understand why having something that's modern and something that's fresh and something that gets people into the learning can start to make a difference.
0: There is something else, which I notice now when we work with learning designers and org scientists and psychologists, we challenge both sides, right? It's also, it's not only like a challenge towards the user to say, well, you got to like give us something and we're happy to go down as slow as two minutes, but you got to come back every day and you have to start building. You have to start developing a practice. That's So it looks like it's a small commitment at front end, but in reality, if you truly commit yourself for doing something every day, we all know how hard that is. And so we also see that, we have segments that are able to do that over years at this point, but it is hard and like a lot of people struggle with it. And our main job to be done really is to help them retain the habit more than like actually teaching them the concepts on their own. But it's also a challenge to the other side, to like the side where I came from originally. And when I work now with running designers or other experts in the field, I notice how like uncomfortable it is for them as well to work with us because <laughs> we come at them and we're like, We love what you have done for X topic. We are so like, we're such big fans of your work in this area. We got to step it up a notch. (laughs) Now where you typically say like an open question at the end of an exercise and you don't actually know whether people do anything with it. Do they pick it up? Do they not? Like we lose these, like leave these, those ends or like open these like bridges into nowhere. Like, that's where in bunch universe, like if we do that, our users are very unforgiving. So because we're an app and because we're promising a continuous learning process, we have to really actually build step-by-step step towards a great leader. So when we provide an exercise, it needs to actually be building on top of another. And when we actually give you a homework, we need to like check back in with you and see, is that actually happening? Were you able to do that? If not, we need to give you a reminder. And so it becomes much more complicated because all of a sudden, because we're given this canvas of app and you have it in your phone, you can use it when you brush your teeth and everywhere else. We are obliged as like learning practitioners to actually create a journey that follows through all the way where before we had workshops where we could stop it like, and then next time we'll continue. (laughs) But so we don't have that luxury anymore. We actually have to deal with like, and what if they didn't do the homework? And what if they didn't do it the way they're supposed to? And like, you can't guilt trip people, right? Like you have to actually engage people in a positive way. So I think that when we work on learning journeys, which is like the core concept behind our premium plan that we are developing right now, I feel how right and important this work is because that's exactly what I noticed when I was studying and I was thinking, well, of course we're disconnected, the HR people from the business people, because we never build the bridge. Like, as an HR practitioner, I come to the table, I'm like, here's all the data, do something. And then the business like, you don't even understand what the fuck is going on. (laughs) Like, tell me what to do. And HR people, well, you're supposed to know it. You're a manager. (laughs) So, like, disconnect. Like, nobody does the connection point. And now I know why it's so damn hard. And it's individualized. I think it's extremely important that we succeed. Because if we do... And I know for a fact, because when we started the world, like, no direct competitors, so there's a few now, if we do many more learning products, we'll adopt the same framework. And that, I think, is even, like, n- more <laughs> motivating <laughs> than just our success. Because I know, like, the Blinkist, the audiobooks, like, the creator economy, like, they all rely on people actually getting value out of content they produce. So we can figure out how to use digital technology to actually make behavioral change happen On a long-term trajectory, that's like a massive change to how we actually adopt new behaviors and how we learn. So pretty motivated to make it happen.
1: (laughs) How do you deal with the nuance with AI? Because we talk about making behavioral changes and predictability. AI is still new. And I can say, as, as you all know, as a black man, even when it comes to AI technology, again, that has another layer to it. So how do you deal with things like gender, race, different cultures, all those different elements and layers when you're dealing with AI and dealing with behavioral change?
0: Yeah, I think that's probably the most hardest answer to give or question to ask. And I'm glad you asked it. I think in the beginning or so like where we are today, we're still relatively nascent and like our AI component really is like a recommendation piece of technology where it's kind of basically a learning technology that kind of learns from your choices, from like similar segments choices and so on. And our solution to that right now is to have representation as much as possible. Basically, if we like create or if we like feed the recommendation engine content that is not only produced by one particular like group of people, by actually representative group of people, we will also see kind of like a more diverse content set and we'll also see a more diverse learning stack, so to say. I think what we want to do in the future, which is probably more interesting from that regard, like when we get to a point where we can use unsupervised modeling and things like that, from what I understand about the AI field so far, (laughs) the only solution to it is, there isn't like any blueprint on how to do it right. Like most models are very limited by their creators like limitations. So I think it's really all, most important part is to like pick the right humans to work on the technology from what i understand and not only like the builders and engineers and designers but also advisors that like live in the more like let's say ethics and ai space that actually have worked on some of like the solution adjustments or solution suggestions so i think my answer would be right now we need to worry about representation in our creator group but also representation in our user group because if we do Draw learnings between different user segments, which we do to a degree. Then you also need to make sure that there is actually like enough diversity in the user pool, actually, which is, I think, the more challenging part for us than the like the creator like part where we get content from and stuff. Like we can influence that. We like approach them individually and build relationships. The user group with a bottom up strategy, obviously, like everyone can download the app. And the reality still is that we have, for instance, more male users than female or non-binary users in the user pool. So that's a challenge that we are actually trying to resolve. And I think there is ways, like branding is one, being more attractive to non-binary and female populations, for instance, but also just testing with people of color, et cetera. I think we can definitely improve there. These are like problems we know of and we're working actively towards, but then there is problems that we don't know of yet, as we increase the complexity on the tech side, we will need more. And I think the solution really, I don't think tech companies have a better solution, but the solution is to work with experts when it comes to like ethics and AI and actually listen to them, not fire them, <laughs> not make their jobs unnecessarily hard. And yes, of course, I'm scared as a founder. I'm like, I'm in a constrained environment. We are underfunded all the time. I'm a female founder myself. It's not like everyone is just throwing money at me, but I still have to, Spend money on an ethics officer probably sooner than later. And I'm gladly committed to doing so and listen to that as much as we can. And as much as we can live up to it, we will. So I wish there would be a magical answer, but I don't think there is.
1: No, there isn't. But I think it also kind of speaks into the work, the field that we're in, where we're constantly learning. It's about recognizing the fact that there's an iteration loop that has to keep on happening. I think I find it, I actually find your response interesting in the sense that. A lot of founders can be like, well, what we're doing is already cutting edge. So I'm just going to stay right here and build out as much as I can. And you're like, "Eh, I'm going to lean more and more and get a bit more complicated and keep on going with it. Why?
0: I don't know. I do this sometimes and I don't think it's always good. So in this case, I think it's actually more good than bad for the company and for the world and for our users. In some other cases, like I, I think I'm... Actually, maybe I like taking two steps too far into like how complex things should go. And like, then I lean on my team to like hold me back. We have this joke that I sometimes need to be like translated to human or like I need to stop overthinking things or, you know, like, <laughs> and then I can rely on some of my team members to like help scope things down and be leaner. But I think it is because I'm a scientist by training. So I learned that when there is contradictory results, that's where like the interesting part begins. And this is where the value gets exponentially higher that we can achieve together. So when it's complicated or difficult, it just means that we haven't understood some moderating factors yet. And that's typically where we like find more if we lean into it. Maybe that explains that.
1: Uh, it. Um, it's definitely a trait that I think it's, I like I respond and resonate with it. And it's one that I guess I was even more curious around because, I don't know if this has changed now, but when I was looking into you last time I was going to speak, but a lot of what you offer is for free. So I'm like, wait a minute, you're feeding into something that is brand new. It's still currently for free. I know you're currently working on a premium model right now. Even that in itself is different because right now people have been trying to like, capitalise on it, but you're, you left it a lot more open. Why? Why did you go down that route?
0: Yeah, that's also a great question because in our field, I think when it comes to like when you think about HR tech or people tech or like LD tech, like you typically see B2B models heavy on enterprise deals, lots of revenue early on. And it's definitely in some ways the easier path to walk, but it also limits your impact to those that can afford it. And if you think about our mission, which is like to help every manager to become a great leader, then we can't really achieve that if we just focus on the ones that can afford us. If you look into Better App, for instance, which is a great platform and they've done a lot for the field, when they raised their like series D or E, I believe, February last year, they had self-reported 100,000 signups and they had a multi-billion dollar valuation at that point. They have very solid revenues like our download count, it's a 60,000 right now, we're like 40% short of where they are after years and years of work. And the only difference between us in that sense is that we are bottom up and everyone can download us and we have like more sharing mechanisms built into it versus they're growing top down. So they're growing for sales and acquisition of accounts. And I think that in the end, In order to make that happen, in order to like capture the market or like to actually get enough accounts on and like in order to reach enough people in the world, we needed to do things differently. And one of them was to make it free at first and figure out a good like user experience that gives value for the free users, but also, of course, like promotes the premium plan in a good enough way that at least a percentage of our free users consider upgrading eventually and when they downgrade again, they have the flexibility to use the free features and like kind of go back and forth. So I think in that sense, we didn't really, that wasn't the playbook we invented. A lot of products in the workspace today, the most successful ones are built on that model. When you look at Figma in design, you look in Miro in like collaboration, remote collaboration. When you look at Notion and Wiki or kind of remote documentation, all the same model, give a good free product to thousands and millions of users in order to then convert enough to actually premium users to sustain yourself and build a viable business model. So I think it's a very used and useful model to build a good business on. It just requires more risk taking in the beginning. It also requires more funding. And I think we were lucky enough to have a really good backer with M13 that joined us in 2019 when we started to flip from the sales driven B2B to like product-led growth, bottom-up user and user-focused driven model. And they stood behind that plan and gave us funding to at least fund the first two years of that. And I think that was really important. Like if you don't have these partners, I don't think you can actually do it.
1: So you've got people who actually believe in what you're doing, who buy into the mission, and who are also willing to take that risk to do something different from the rest of the industry.
0: We would not be anywhere if we wouldn't have had so many people that believe in it, which is also what like, motivates me and Anthony always to like, get out of every like, hole, you know, when things get really rough and we're like, oh, it's end of runway, I don't know how we're not bankrupted. <laughs> and when you look into these like stories of, I don't know, many other very useful products, like look at what Calm did for meditation or Headspace, look at what Noom did for Weight Loss and Healthy Living in healthy food. Like all of these teams, if you actually dig into them, have cockroached for years. They've lived in like the same apartment for five to seven years. They haven't like had any salaries because they needed to be so hyper capital efficient to just make it to a point where they have XYZ thousands of downloads or millions of downloads, whatever was determined by the VC market at that point is like counts as like enough substantial traction to actually get substantial funding and then scale up the business model like it's not the easy route for sure but it's at the same time it's the business model that helps us revolutionize whole markets and actually touches the consumer and like makes a difference on people's lives and you do need to have backers and supporters and i think in this case we were lucky enough to work with not only m13 but also specifically in the last angel round that we're just closing now actually we have leaders from a wide range of companies. And we it was so interesting because we had the majority of capital came from private angels in this round. And it's not a small round. It was like 10, 2 million. And it's not like a, I mean, small, big, in current market environments, nobody really knows <laughs> what that is anymore. But normally it's not the thing you think of. You kind of, with 2 million, you kind of think, okay, like one, be VCs probably is like the right thing to do, like early stage. And in our case, we went with the angels And a lot of them worked for companies like Atlassian, Figma, Google, Airbnb in like executive positions or are still in like VP and above positions. And when we asked them, why did you invest? Most of the answers go back to the same thing, which is we know the problem. We have had the problem ourselves and the HR solutions don't work in that space. It's an underserved market. We need to solve it at a scalable level so that every engineer who steps up to be a team lead has access to something that helps them grow. Currently, they don't. And I found that very interesting because it was 2022 and I'm like, oh, wow. I felt we didn't solve it. That's <laughs> why we keep going. It's fascinating how like long it takes us to actually resolve a problem that actually could be solved.
1: Yeah. I think. The need is there for sure. I'll see it played out day-to-day, just like you do as well. And it's interesting, there's also a generational element to this, in my opinion, where a lot of the younger millennial, later millennials, (laughs) Gen Z kind of generation who are now coming up in their 30s, 40s, in that are looking for these resources because the way leadership was done previously, the way it's done now, requires a completely different set of skills. So as much as you can lean into the old generation to get some much needed guidance, there's a lot of new things that they just don't have or they didn't lean on. So they need that connection between both the old and the new ways of working, which is something that I guess your product kind of provides for people as well.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I think what's also super interesting that we see is that people are much more willing to learn from peers. I think they always have been. But as what you just said, as we understood that there is more and new concepts required and skills and capabilities in the workplace today in comparison to the previous days, these concepts don't exist in the books yet. Like there is just like a handful of books that have been written in the past two years that really kind of shed light on. How to really do belonging and inclusion? I mean, we barely understand the concepts. Like, I was a psychologist, and I struggle to explain that to sometimes to people. And I think many people do. Like, there's experts, sure, great, and luckily they do write a few books, and like at least some people read them. But in order for us to get to a point where, in every meeting, all around the world, the facilitator knows how to moderate so that you get everyone heard, we have a damn long way to go. And I think that. In order to get that, we can't wait until they you know the new wave of books is written. That's going to take us 25 years. <laughs> so we got to figure out fast ways to exchange that knowledge. And I think peer learning is definitely a good key to doing that because what you see already on like LinkedIn or Twitter sometimes when people actually like publish the threads of what they learned or publish a LinkedIn summary and like, some people find them a little bit like ridiculous because like there's of course the templating and like the growing audiences aspect to it. But some of these learnings are actually really fucking good. And like, it is much faster to publish to your whatever 10K, 15K followers on all the, like, of these platforms and reach them and then give them a template. Like I had this experience last week where I published a template delegation because I struggled with it myself. So I researched a bunch and like I put together a motion page for myself and then I like posted it on LinkedIn and I had. I don't know, 150 people asking for the template, which showed me, oh, I'm not the only one. <laughs> Everyone's showing with delegation. So these type of like loops of learning where like, oh, I figured something out, do you want it? Like that offering of marketplace is just so interesting and like such a cool new dynamic that we didn't have in the past. And I think many of our products like bunch like we'll double down on that, I think, hopefully.
1: How do you define leadership?
0: It took me like six months to define it into the bunch journey, but where I landed on, and again, like, don't hold me to it as like, I don't, I didn't prove it scientifically, but I think that it's the impact you exert on yourself and others. And like, if you want it to be leadership in the sense that we define it as in like a positive type of leadership, then it would need to be positive impact
1: on yourself and others. And where would you want to see bunch? Where would you want to see bunch in the next five years?
0: We do need to reach every team lead and manager <laughs> that is carrying responsibility for teams and make sure that they have the resources they need in the moment when they need them. And I think it can be done at five. I tend to overestimate <laughs> and underestimate how long they take. So it might take seven, but it's the right order, we think. That's the right order. Like, yeah, I like it.
1: And guess the last one I'll ask you is what's been the most important thing you've learned about your leadership? as you've gone in this entrepreneurial journey?
0: Three things. Asking for help in a good way so that others can help you. Didn't do it early enough, I think. Or like not good enough.
1: What is a, what is a good way? I'm sorry. Just...
0: What is a good way to? It's a great question. Maybe a tip. I <laughs> a bunch. <laughs> good way to ask for help is to be specific, to give on why you're asking for help. What impact will it have when the person helps you? And then also have a CTA, like, what do you think they can do to help you? If you can pull that off, it's always better. Sometimes it's emotionally challenging because you're like drowning and overwhelmed and stuff. But like, then maybe it's better to go for a walk for like 15 minutes or talk to someone. And then they help you to like crystallize like, oh, it seems like you need help. Have you asked? And you're like, oh no, I didn't. (laughs) So let me write down the five bullet points that I need like from them. So like expressing your needs, I think when you ask for help clearly is a very important one. And the other part is that I don't think there is like one style, obviously we all have our different styles and like really understanding what your personal mission is and like, why are you doing this? And like, what matters to you and find ways how others can connect to it. I still am like, I'm not very good at it. I don't think I struggle with storytelling. Sometimes I so like too complicated. But yeah, I think like figuring out ways how to like make people connect to like the essence of what you do and why you care about it so that they can mirror their own story in it. I feel that's kind of a cool like thing to achieve. Like when you talk to your team or like to your users or whatever and they can like relate to what you're going through from their own perspective. So keep it personal and authentic but at the same time get to the human experience in it so that it's relatable. Like, I think that's quite good. And I wish I could like do that better or I would have understood to do it earlier.
1: I think you do it well. And it's interesting before we came out, we were talking about how we should play this. And that was the point where I'm like, it's that capturing both of that practical and that realness and listening to everything you shared. You're definitely a great storyteller because you've, you've told the story. At I'll, the
0: tell, I'll tell this to our product growth lead who like trained me for the past three years. <laughs> not sure whether she thinks the same way, but it did help a lot.
1: You can definitely see like the path and the journey and how you're even applying a lot of what you learned previously to what it is you do now. That bridge is something that, like I said, it's not out there. And you actually creating that, but coming from a value perspective, flipping the way the industry is going on its head and going down a particular lane, which is new for a lot of people, but we're willing to do that because you know, it's going to make a difference. These are things that are much needed. And it's great that organizations like yours are out there. And I love, love when you're talking about the habits, like this is around habit creation. When someone knows that they can do something that they thought, I don't have time to do this, or they thought this is so out there. Once they learn that, and they hold on to that, That like, okay, what's next? What else can I learn? What else can I grow? What else can I develop? So I love the concept. You're all approaching things at a punch.
0: Yeah, definitely couldn't have summarized it any better. So thank you for, yeah, for the compliments, but also for the
1: great questions. It is an absolute pleasure. So show notes will have everything that Deja does. She has an amazing newsletter. So that'll definitely be <laughs> that be in there. And then still
0: need to write today. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and there's some more information around a bunch as well and downloading the app as well. So you're, you can learn, you can experience it, you can get it for free and then to take it to that next level to keep your learning development grown. So appreciate your time and your experience today, Deja.
0: Thank you so much. And it's been a huge pleasure. Thanks again for having me on and really looking forward to get in touch with all folks that want to chat about leadership or entrepreneurship anytime
1: brilliant this is everyday leadership and we'll see you soon